everybody. This is Derek Hart, the founder and chairman of the Control System Cybersecurity Association International, or as we call it, CSE. Thanks for tuning into our podcast. On May 17, 2023, we initiated a series of events focused on cybersecurity for the transportation sectors. We kicked it off with a five-hour symposium about cybersecurity for planes, trains, and automobiles, and we included some boats in that too. As an added bonus, we decided to divide our amazing panels that day into four podcasts to go with the series. If you visit our website at www.csa.org, cs2ai.org, you can click in the yellow bar at the top of the page and see all the upcoming events in our 100 Days of Cybersecurity for Transportation. You'll also be entered in the 100 Days series prize wheel, where we'll be giving away over $2,000 worth of prizes at the end of the series, and the details of how to do that are described during each of the events. Thanks for listening in, and we hope to see you soon at one of our live CSA online events over the next couple of months. Take care. Be well. All right. Welcome, all. Uh, we'll do a quick uh, go around the horn uh, and introduce yourselves. I think I've got a slide submission from one of you. Let's see what I got. Now, Mickey, you are up first since we have a slide for you, and then we'll go Omar and then Joe. Oh, wow. That's great. All right. So, hello, everyone. Uh, good afternoon or good evening to some of you. Uh, my name is Mickey Schiffman. I'm CPO and co-founder at Silos. Silos, we're a company focused on real cybersecurity, so we specialize in protecting rail technology environment through products for both trackside and rolling stock. Uh, myself, I have over 15 years of experience in cyber R&D all across the board, so research, uh, security research and development, of course, and also in communications and embedded systems. Uh, for the past six years, I've been with Silos, a company I co-founded, uh, and I was focusing on rail cybersecurity, I've been focusing on rail cybersecurity, and I'm currently also a member of global standardization groups uh, worldwide that are related to rail cybersecurity. So our goal is also to promote awareness as well as best practices around the world, and we're supporting many of those initiatives, including one that I've mentioned here in the slide, which is a relatively new group by IEC. And the International Standards Organization for, it's called 63452. Not a number I expect you to remember, quite confusing. Uh, it uses all the possible digits, but that's kind of like a form of IC6204 rail, uh, and it has the goal of resolving some of the major issues of using IC62403 in rail environments. Uh, other than that, I've been listed in Forbes 30 under 30, and I'm actually amateur chess player, so happy to accept challenges from whoever in the audience uh, after the call, of course. Uh, awesome. Thank you very much. Welcome. Omar, how about yourself? Yeah. Uh, hi, everyone. My uh, name is Omar Shireen. Uh, I'm a partner in EY, Ernest Young. Um, I lead the OT cyber uh, security for, um, for our business in the MENA region, uh, which is uh, the Middle East and, and Africa and India as well. 20 years cyber security experience. Um, just like everyone here, lots of certificates, but also lots of uh, uh, bruises and uh, hard-learned hard lessons. I uh, used to work in a national cert for 10 years, so had the uh, opportunity to work on uh, many incidents um, uh, around critical infrastructure, including rail and, and other industries. Uh, for the past few years, I've been focusing on, uh, on uh, rail and, um, and energy in particular. Uh, oil and gas, uh, since this are, is also a very popular uh, sector in, in, in the region where, or the Middle East where I come from. So happy to be with you uh, today. Looking forward to the session. And Omar, um, sometimes we talk about a lot, it comes up incidents drive, you know, yeah. behaviors. But also Absolutely. 
Don't, do big events drive new behaviors? Absolutely, that's true. Um, I think we, um, where I'm based, I'm based in Qatar, and uh, we were hosting the World Cup just a few months back. And um, probably three, four years before the event, uh, there was a massive push for cyber because it was um, a very smart event. Uh, you know, it was smart transportation, smart, smart uh, venues, uh, and, for, and for such a small country like Qatar, that's, that, that meant a lot. And uh, cyber uh, was definitely the number one risk uh, that was facing that event at the national level. And uh, lots of uh, lessons learned and investments and, and uh, innovation uh, came, came from that. So uh, I'll be probably talking about this as well uh, today. Awesome. All right, Joe. Yeah, good evening. Um, just like everybody else on the call, been in cyber for way longer than I think I can remember. Um, I think about 17 years at last count. I've covered all areas of cybersecurity, so elements of business compliance from PCI compliance, ISO 27001, the business elements that also underpin a lot of the operational components, again, working through things in every industry, as they across transportation, um, working for Pentest Partners, we produce lots of cutting edge research in lots of different areas. There's a lot of crossover within the supply chains, within the transportation industries. Um, rail is quite an interesting one. I'm looking forward to speaking about some scenarios with the team tonight. And I have a, a huge passion for big picture security. There's lots of compliance and regulations. There's lots of clients trying to do the right thing. But then you've got an immense supply chain of innovative small vendors, large conglomerates, each with their own individual challenges that they're bringing to the table within this you know, exponential growth that we're seeing both in cyber logistics and the supply chain as a whole, which factors in transportation. So, yeah, very excited to be here. I love the thought of the, the cross knowledge transfer and the sharing of information. I think we've all seen from the previous talks that we've just had, there's so much commonality in the challenges being faced and having these sort of symposiums where we can share and cross-pollinate that knowledge is fantastic because another thing that has resonated is the difficulty we all find in sharing some of that deep-rooted cybersecurity knowledge because of legal contracts, NDAs, and the privacy we've rightly introduced, but that has also become a blocker. So really excited to kind of debate and talk about that tonight and look forward to the, the 100 days you've created. So, yes, that's me. Well, I, I couldn't agree with you more. It's been it's been a really fun journey. And now the fact we get to do these deeper dives with all of you, it's fantastic. And it was sort of a happy accident because there were so many people that said, yeah, we want to talk from our, our global sort of reach out. Uh, what, what a cool, uh, for us, high quality problem. Like we can't fit all these people in, but now we can. So thanks for everybody for playing along with that. And you all are calling from different countries in the world. This is our most international panel, I think, if I'm not mistaken. So uh, that's cool, too. And I think late at night, uh, various degrees of late at night for each of you. So thank you for uh, for that as well. All right. Well, let's let's dive in. So uh, maybe maybe, Joe, you sort of hit it off, which is often there's a question around what's distinctive. You know, there are commonalities. There are some things that are ubiquitous across all the verticals. Um, human beings are involved with all of it. And we've got problems with human beings in every sector. But what are what are some of the maybe what would you call out? Um, maybe each of you could pick something that's distinctive when it comes to cybersecurity within the, the, the rails uh, uh, vertical. If it's okay if I start, it just leads on from a point that I just made, which is the complexity and the expanse of what is considered the rail industry. Because people just think of trains, 
but there are some very specific definitions you know that you know various directives have identified from you know the infrastructure managers and you know typically in IT you think of an infrastructure manager managing IT whereas this is any firm person you know organization conglomerate of organizations responsible for running the functions of, of part of the network you know railway undertakings supply chain but you think of supply chain as those third parties but then that's more granular within rail you've got service providers that are responsible for entities in charge of train maintenance the delivery chain and all the stakeholders that are part of that the authority bodies public areas and other entities it's actually a huge employer and is responsible for between 60 to 90 percent of passenger transportation for, for us as a, as a public service and factors widely into the wider supply chain of both maritime and aviation networks so i think it's when people think of rail they just think of trains and a train station and they don't take into account the, the huge complexity actually of the supply chain and the challenges that that then brings forward that that you know that came out in aviation too we think about planes and you could myopically focus on the plane and the cybersecurity of the plane and then say oh wait a minute there's fuel and there's all these supplies going back and forth and there's technicians and there's repairs and and there's ticketing and oh my gosh so this the, the industry and i would assume it's the same for you has all that too I mean, ticketing i mean it, many interesting you could disrupt one of those systems and they're not they're not some of them are not safety related there, but they could be very impactful nonetheless to reputational risks, uh, other kinds of risks beyond just the, the the one that we all focus on sometimes, you know, human safety. That's big. But wow, the risks, the, the total number of risks are, are much larger than that. Absolutely. And I think as the connected world has grown, you know, guys, feel free to jump here. But as the connected world has grown, that has, again, changed things. You put in instant Bluetooth monitors to grab information from trains as they're, they're passing through networks, through GSM connections. You know, your passenger infotainment system, you're actually, you know, in, inviting people to connect into your systems and download your applications. And there are lots of other critical applications that are available on trains for the people who are providing food service for the ones that are issuing ticketing rightly so those that are for critical maintenance and monitoring systems that all these new regulations are now requiring be available in real time and availability is becoming critical as well as the integrity of that data yeah all right mickey you're, you're up next uh, anything on distinctiveness um, or sort of issue that you would call specific attention having to do with you know with this vertical yeah sure so maybe I'll give just a quite simple example. Um, so when we started the company in 2017, there was a very big hype around driverless cars. Uh, so everyone was talking about driverless vehicles and when they're gonna be commercially available. Some were saying it's gonna be 2020, some were saying earlier or later. We're now in 2023 and still don't see like driverless cars as available. At the same time, you have driverless trains already in operation for quite a while. So actually, if you go to a place like, I don't remember the exact number, but I think it's approximately 50% of the newly built metro systems around the world are actually driverless. And if you go to a place like Paris or Singapore and many other places around the world, you can actually see hundreds of thousands of passengers on a daily basis travel within a driverless train. These driverless trains are powered by some specific uh, train control and signaling technologies. We can talk about them later on. But when you think about it, like you have so many passengers driving sometimes at high speeds with very low, uh, let's say, margins or headways between trains. We as like 
cyber practitioners can already imagine what could be the consequence of an attack. And actually, like when I got into the domain, I was immediately thinking, how does this thing work? Uh, and unfortunately, I've discovered that it wasn't necessarily considered with a lot of security in it. So it was quite basic. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I was thinking as you spoke, like this makes sense that there are, from a safety standpoint, I would guess it goes up when you start getting some of the human beings that have done silly things while they're at the right. controls of trains, you know, fall asleep or had alcohol or whatever. Safety probably goes up, except the unintended consequence of if you remove the human being, now there's exactly. now there's possibilities for someone to get in the middle of that. Is that is that yeah. safe to say? You need to replace them with, with machines and with computers, and we all know how good computers are in being protected. So uh, usually that's the that's the issue. And, and I think it's one, like maybe I'm, I cannot say I'm familiar with all the modes of transportation, but from what I know, it's probably the only mode of transportation that you can have like such commercial services with completely driverless vehicle, whether it's a plane, whether it's... Uh, uh, whether it's, uh, of course, a car, a car or something like that, I still don't see it anywhere else. So I think trains are still the only, it's still I, I the think, only mode of transport. I, I, Maritime talked about it um, and, you know, autonomous ships. Yes, there's experiments and things going on, but it's yeah. like not, it's not, you, you know, widespread use. So you may be, you may be very much, and I think a, a pilotless planes haven't heard of those yet. So you, you're probably right. At least the verticals we covered today, I think you, you, you may be, you may be on the money there. Omar, what about yourself? Yeah, I, I think I, I used to work a lot on the energy sector, and, and I thought that it's the most complex um, uh, systems and, and environment until I got into the, the rail uh, probably five, six years ago. And I was uh, shocked by the amount of systems required to, to make such, um, let's say, a national rail network work. And, and like everyone here said, rail is not just trains. It's... Um, you can put under that label a metro, you can put light uh, light tram systems, you can put uh, many, many kind of, uh, of, of uh, applications or, and, and, and systems. Um, and it, if you look at that, even as simple as a, as a tram solution or an underground solution, um, there's systems on the train itself, there are systems on the stations, there are systems that control the operation, there are systems that, um, let's say, manage just the tunnel ventilation, there are systems that, hand over the communication between one station and another as the, tra as the tra tram itself or the train moves from one location to another. It's continuously and constantly uh, exchanging lots of data, um, operational, uh, and also that will have a different, definitely a safety impact, uh, not to mention the ticketing, not to mention the entertainment, not to mention the evacuation systems. And we're, we're talking about thousands of people or millions of people in, in some large cities underground in multiple levels, and and that's a very complex uh, operation. Um, so definitely, definitely, it's it's a very complex industry. Well, the stage is set. I think you guys have said it pretty well, um, and we could dive into so many aspects of it. Um, you know, there are some questions starting to come in, and there'll just be more as we go along. Um, one that I, you know, that comes up in every one of these sessions is around regulatory effect. Uh, what's in place. And some industries have very little and others have more. Clearly, some aspects uh, of uh, your industry is, you know, sub is subject to, to regulatory uh, bodies. How does, how, where is cybersecurity and regulation? Where, where are we right now with that? I think um, 
We had my first interaction with that a uh, few years back and probably six years ago was um, a national rail company in the region and they wanted to to improve their security. And at that time, we looked really hard around the globe for standards and there was not at that time a, a standard dedicated for rail. Uh, and there were so many initiatives, there were so many groups, there were some really good you know, starting points, but there was not uh, one single source of reference uh, and what we had to do is is to work with them to develop our own standard uh, since there was none and i i think we needed a lot of collaboration between the um, the vendor who designed the rail uh, the user and the, and the and the you know the the company that actually bought the the system and the regulator um, and we developed together uh, our own standard at for for that particular country and I think we learned so much from that process. And what we can say also that probably we, we need more, more detailed standards and more common architectures and more, uh, let's say, instructions uh, and guidelines for the manufacturers, how to, to you know, build secure components. Uh, I think that's one weakness because whatever or whatever systems we checked at that time and we validated and vetted and there was the same exact security problems that you expect in a typical OT system, uh, hard-coded passwords and uh, um, very easy uh, to guess, um, uh, let's say, uh, passphrases and weak uh, crypto components. So those, you know, um, uh, chronic issues are still there. And if if we don't have a standard and, and, the, and the technology is keeping uh, let's say uh, evolving without the basic security components, the problem will only get worse and worse. So I think we we really need a standard, um, and probably this might be uh, an initiative that I'm excited to know more from Mike from Mickey probably about it, and and how what's what's coming up uh, from that working group, which uh, looks very interesting. And before we yeah. pass the microphone to one of the, one of the two of you, is already a question came in. Is do we need a, yet another standard? It just popped in. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I think I think we did. I think I think we do. Sorry, because you can't apply, uh, let's say, an IEC six two four four three or the ISO ninety nine in the rail industry. It w it won't work. They don't have that that uh, or the Purdue model. It doesn't fit. Uh, just like I said, you have systems on on a moving platform. You have systems on a dynamic platform or a static platform. You have um, lots of technologies and and wireless technologies that are not used in the field. Uh, or in a typical oil and gas, so it's a it's really complex environment that would you know would require its own okay. standard. Yeah, yeah, Nikki, I'd agree. You. Could I jump in before because I'm yeah. really keen to hear about the new standard which has recently yeah. come across yeah. my path. Because I'd like to agree with Omar. There's a complexity of various standards out there. I think there was TS50701 that was based on the IEC 62443 and EN501 two, six or seven, I think. And then with the new, is it six, three, four, five, two, you said, Nick, it was that rare, I think. Oh, that was a, that was another one. But then at the same time, you've got those conflicting standards. So rightly, as Omar said, there are also these companies are having to store fuel for some of their vehicles. So they may have to then comply with something like OG86 or something critical for critical national infrastructure. They are a very niche 
industry and the challenge has been as these new regulations come through as Omar again highlighted the controls that come through can be quite vague how they can be applied can be misinterpreted or misapplied in some instances how the audits are then understood can be a challenge but then you have conflicting industry standards such as the new radio equipment directive that is coming through that will that has just been delayed again that was impacting lots of vendors they're ramping up to try and deal with but those vendors have also got um, maybe the IACS regula regulations to deal with from the IMO as well as rail ones so I think having a, a, a clear standard because I think we've got to revamp all of these old ones industry is moving on so quickly but having those clear guidance on not only what the expectations are of the industry but also guidance on the controls in a clear fashion that highlights the cross-industry requirements. So the fact that there is a new standard coming through, because I think most security professionals would be, absolutely, we don't need another standard on top of another standard. But in this area, I think we're all quite excited. No pressure. <laughs> so, Mickey. Uh, yeah, so I'll, I'll try to comment on that, although I can speak about it for ages, so you'll have to stop me at some point. Um, so first, I agree with Omar uh, about the comment that rail environments are, com are are complex and like not easy to adopt any of the existing standards in, let's say, a straightforward way at least. And I also agree with Joe that there is a lot of complexity in having a bunch of conflicting standards and also sometimes they're regional, which is even more complicated. Maybe I'll explain like the trends that we're seeing around the globe and also like how the standard has evolved. So like the... Joe uh, mentioned the standard called TS50701. So this one was a technical specification that was released by a body called SenAlec. It was approximately a year ago, if I'm not mistaken. And this standard was developed by a group of experts that represented uh, both railway suppliers as well as asset owners, which means operators or infrastructure managers, which again is something in complexity of rail, not all like trains and infrastructure can be managed by different companies actually. And it, it, it becomes quite complicated to share responsibility, especially when these are communicating with each other for daily operations. Um, so the group decided to take uh, IEC 62403 as a baseline, and I'm, I'm quite, I'm sure that most of you have read some parts of IEC 6403, and I'm sure that no one read the entire series because it's quite lengthy and has different chapters. But the idea was to take this and actually adjust it to another standard that exists in the rail space, which is more coming from the safety aspect of rail. So rail itself is a very regulated industry because companies need to receive safety approval in order to operate trains and suppliers need to certify their components for safety. And that's the tradition of the rail industry. So without a standard, it's actually most suppliers, they don't know what they're supposed to do to properly secure their system. So that's why also suppliers had the push because they understood that cybersecurity is a hot topic. They understood they're going to encounter it uh, in their customer environments around the world and want to know what to do about it. So there's actually a push also from suppliers and some of the leading members of those groups also representing suppliers. And what they did was actually taking the rail life cycle, uh, which is a system called uh, RAMS, and combined it with security. So it's taking the reliability, availability, and availability, and safety, that's RAMS, combining it with security and understanding how do you generate a secure and safe 
uh, rail system. So it's just, it's more systems and not components. So it's a subset of ICC proposal free. It's the dash free in the series. And this standard uh, relates to everything from how do you start the life cycle and how safety and security are part of the life cycle to how do you conduct a risk assessment on a specific system to how do you operate and commission uh, commission and operate uh, a secure system. So it has, it's actually quite widespread. Uh, and this was again, a European standard and the goal of the IC working group that I'm part of is actually to take this TS50701 standard that was released and basically modify it, but rely on it and adjust it to more global environments. So Europe has its own environment, but the goal of the IC standard is actually to adjust to global regulations and global technologies and things that are happening outside Europe as well. And it also includes many members that are outside Europe, also from North America and Asia. And the goal of, uh, of this entire standard is to answer this question and hopefully serve as something that is useful for suppliers uh, when they build systems as well as for operators when they want to build their OT security program inside the rail environment. So that's in a nutshell about this standard. I haven't related to regulations at all, but I guess we'll keep it to a later stage because regulations is a bit different. It's something that is done by the government and not by standard groups. So they should adopt some of it if, uh, if they want it to be mandated. Like, is it hard to have the regulations in place if the standards aren't there? Meaning, what are you gonna hold? No, regulations are happening regardless. Regulations are happening in the rail environment because rail is a critical infrastructure in almost every country and there is a very strong trend all all around the world of critical infrastructure they are now regulated for extra security uh in and we've seen it in europe it's uh, the nis directive in uh the united states we 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 saw like uh late last year the tsa security directives uh, actually, it started before, but late last year, there was an update to the directives. And in other places, for example, in Israel, we have the National Cyber Authority that regulates uh, critical infrastructure and actually puts requirements on every uh, operator of essential services or critical infrastructure entity. And I see the same trend happening in other places like uh, Australia, for example, in some of the Asian countries. So it's it's a global trend that actually rail is part of it. And then like you can combine those regulations with the upcoming standards, but that hasn't happened yet, mostly because those standards are not ready yet. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny, I was thinking about it. You you're the industry here we're talking about the rail crosses country lines and keeps on going. And so it's this big mesh versus like a ship or whatever it might be, or even a port is 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 in one place. But uh, in aviation, I guess it crosses in that the planes go to other locations. But you're you're really talking about something that is constantly meshed. And right. so how regulations and standards and all this stuff works, that's going to be not trivial. Yeah. We haven't started talking about interoperability and things like that that <laughs> happen in the rail environment. Yeah. Hey, everybody. Derek Harp here. And I just want to take a brief moment to thank three companies that make this podcast series possible. The first company is Waterfall Security Solutions. They led the charge this year for the podcast. And they specifically sponsored it from their podcast, the Industrial Security Podcast. 
So check that out. That's a great linkage to an entire other series of over 100 episodes. They had their anniversary recently focused on control system cybersecurity, and they were supported this year by KPMG and Fortinet. We could not do this without them. These companies not only have supported this podcast series this year, but they've supported CSA since its very early days eight years ago. And we're entirely grateful to the teams and dedicated professionals at Waterfall Security Solutions, KPMG, and Fortinet. Let's talk about um, how old the technology is. This comes up in a lot of industry verticals. The, the you know Windows three point something still working in the manufacturing plant. Um, what what is and, and we got a question about this. You know, and the person's talking about protecting legacy trains. So I was translating that to how old is the technology on average? Many are reluctant to upgrade and move away from unencrypted ATCS 800 megahertz radio systems. So I just add that as a specific thing because it was asked about. So from my, from my side, maybe if I can start, I think the, the oldest system I, I, I came across is the, uh, it was NT, uh, Windows NT in, in, uh, one, uh, one, in one case. Um, but the most I'm seeing now is Windows 10, which is, is already um, end of service. That's, that's another problem. I have not seen anything yet beyond Windows 10. Uh, sorry, uh, Windows XP. Um, Windows 10 started to come. Uh, those are the new systems that I'm seeing now being installed uh, in the region. Uh, they are all Windows 10, uh, which is nice, nice, nice to have or nice to get. Um, in terms of, um, I think in terms of crypto, uh, that's still behind. I think uh, that's one thing I'm, I'm worried about. Uh, those the crypto components. That I think then in some cases, for a tram system to move from one line to another line, it needs to be programmed to use that line. For example, if, if you have a country and you have like a golden line, yellow line, green line, blue line, uh, taking you to different places, for a, for a tram system or a rail system to move from one rail network to another rail network, you need to be, or that, that train need to be authorized to use that. And that comes with a, with a signature. And those systems are, are always, I think we, we can definitely have a better security uh, from what, I, what I have seen. But I'm sure also my colleagues would be giving more examples on, on the systems uh, and how old they, they have encountered uh, in, in the in the wild. ...and making the transitions into using security technologies, implementing innovation, trying to grow whilst building on legacy systems. I think we've all seen that fantastic analogy of, you know, a whole castle built on some guy in Nebraska who's been propping up a server for 20 years. No one's quite sure what's going to happen when, when he's no longer with us. But there's a whole cascade element of that. And it's quite costly, I think, for operators and vendors to understand where the industry is going. Um, so there's definitely some challenges there, but I think it's learning from the private sector, adopting those new technologies and learning as they go. I know it's a bit of a challenge, um, but I think there's no easy, quick route because a lot of the technology, as we've said, is so old. Um, a lot of the, the challenges is even being able to transition up through the stages of, a, of a, an update and a rollout, because moving from XP to even the 2010 is not an easy transition to make for any team. And it can take many, many years. And I think because we referred to, it may have been in the aviation one, by the time you've made that transition, the new infrastructure technology platform you're utilizing could have an inherent vulnerability identified within it that is difficult to change. 
So I think it's facing the exact same challenges as some of the other sectors that we've seen across critical national infrastructure, aviation and maritime. So yeah, I'm interested to see how the next two, three years kind of unfold. And I think everybody in cyber and technology is going to be extremely busy. That's probably Uh, very true. (laughs) If I may relate to that as well. So I totally uh, align with the comments uh, by Joe and Omar. Uh, just to give a few examples here. So first, the typical rolling stock or rail safety system life cycle is between 15 to 30 years. So that's one thing. Until give or take five years ago, no one was speaking about patching in the rail environment at all. Like it was a taboo. You shouldn't touch it. Actually, if you touch it, it's more expensive because you sometimes need to certify, recertify the safety of your system, which is very expensive if you compare it to other things, even like buying products. So that's 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 one thing. Um, but another thing is actually thinking about how you build the rolling stock or something similar. So from the point that a company is awarded with, uh, let's say, uh, a project that they need to supply rolling stock, to the point that the rolling stock is actually manufactured, designed, manufactured and tested somewhere and then deployed. Sometimes, even in this time frame, the operating system gets to end of life. So you could actually have, like even in the first day of operation, a completely old operating system because it's like five or seven years in there. Most operating system lived up to 10 years if you get some enterprise support or whatever, but like, it's very uncommon to have something that lives more. And I think that's a problem by design in those environments. And if you add to that the complexity of patching or changing uh, a design that was already approved, at least according to the most of the safety norms, that makes it even more complicated. Uh, And I think that's part of the challenge that the rail industry is tackling in the past few years. And uh, like, that's how they, like they try to approach it actually, Patching was also one of the top four directives uh, by the TSA. So TSA also related to it as something that is important, but the wording was a bit, uh, the, the wording was actually adjusted for the rail industry. It's more like uh, you need to like uh, reduce the risk of unpatched systems by application of patching, but using risk-based methodology. So whatever that means, but, but, but we can understand that it can mean different things to different people. I, I think, uh, Derek, one of the challenges as well that led to make this very valid point on patching, uh, maybe it's also true in, in, in other uh, transportation sectors, is the, um, you know, there's the owner of the asset and there's the operator, which is another company. Then you have the maintenance companies and, and their subcontractors. You will easily get five or six companies working together, supposedly, on, on maintaining that asset. Uh, there was one system I, I have once seen in, in, a, in a country, that particular system had 42,000 uh, patches missing, 42,000 on, on one system. Uh, that's the OS, the third-party applications installed, the uh, uh, the uh, actual, the actual uh, software that was installed on it on, on top of the OS. In total, for so many years, probably 10, 10 11 years, untouched. Um, and uh, when we were asking how this came across, it was you know, everyone is depending on the other company that they would do it, and no one does it. Um, and it's it's really, I, I don't blame them. I understand the complexity, but um, you would not expect that. But 
uh, it's really that complex because you have so many small components um, like small sections in a tunnel running uh, you know a turbine wind turbine or ventilation outlet whose responsibility is that is it the owner or the maintainer or the maintenance company and and that gets lots into you know those details get get lost in translation and the end result is that no one is is doing his job somewhere yeah and I think as vulnerabilities come about, um, I think the Cyber Resilience Act is certainly going to cause some interesting um, scenarios to arise throughout the supply chain and how prepared is everybody to respond to those notifications? Where do they go? And, you know, referring back to you know that the, the importance of erasing the responsibility and the accountability and making sure that that matches your contract your legal agreement, your processes, and how your supply chain is reacting on your behalf. Because again, there is a lot of outsourcing, there's a lot of independent contractors within rail. That is quite significant as well, where you know there's a lot of finger pointing and it could be just some individual in a country that's run that, um, that could have brought an entire company down to its knee. But again, I think it's just a very complex and interesting scenario. Yes, from the actual technical components and how that reacts and how they fit together, but also the legalities and the insurance and the finger pointing components yeah. when things like the Cyber Resilience Act come through, I think is going to be really interesting. I think it's quite, again, it's a, an exciting yeah. time in cyber. Uh, in I think one of, the common, uh, <laughs> one of the common things the the rail industry have with the energy sector, uh, but maybe back to Mickey's point, is that there's whatever contract you review or whatever agreement you review, you will find lots of safety clauses, lots of it. Everyone is clear on that one. Everyone knows exactly that this is the responsibility of X or Y. But on cyber, it's very little, very light, uh, maybe completely neglected in some cases. Uh, that's something I've seen common, in common uh, between uh, energy, or, I mean, oil and gas and, and, and rail, unfortunately. You know, there's a number of things, of questions have come in, and, and this one's sort of related to, you know, we talked about old technology, of which is, you know, going to be out there, that tech refresh rate, you're talking about 15, 30 years. What about new, new rail projects? You know, there's been questions about hyperloops and high-speed passenger trains. Is cybersecurity baked into those projects the green field projects yeah yeah yes, okay no. maybe no, no no i'm trying uh so, so it depends it depends on many properties it depends sometimes on the country it depends it depends on the mindset of the security of the particular operator sometimes how much are the security teams um or the consultants that they work with so that's like typical typical project uh, team that is responsible for putting those uh, RFPs out and uh, make sure it's secure. But in the end, I think that, as Omar said, like it really boils down to having those requirements explicit so that the manufacturers of the trains will have clear directions that can be, they, they need to be as clear as possible to implement in such that are clear that they're going to be validated also by the company that purchases the trains. So the new technologies, of course, like as you can imagine, they might be more vulnerable, they might be less vulnerable, depends on how you look at it. But it's very important, and it's something that I, I have already seen happening, but it's very important that many operators will adopt it. 
there's supposed to be a notion that uh, the operator is only permitted to operate trains only if they pass the security tests as part of the commissioning process. And we've seen it happening. We've seen operators that actually conducted penetration testing or something similar by a third party on new trains. They validated the security design documentation. They validated uh, the implementation. They validated uh, the, 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 final, uh, the final setup. But it's very important that operators will add it to their life cycle of procurement as well, because otherwise it's just not going to happen. Safety will happen for sure. That's already like part of the DNA. That's part of the regulations. I don't think that we need to get to the point the regulations are as specific in order to have the rail secure, like because otherwise it will take a lot of time. It's now it should be treated more similar like to how we treat safety requirements in tenders or RFPs. And by that, having like just one clear way for the supplier to provide secure systems. Yeah, I think uh, there can, uh, we, ha we had some incidents in, in the CERT and when we talked to the OEMs, why you, why you haven't fixed that issue? Uh, for them, it was back to Mickey's point, the client didn't ask for it. That was the answer. Yeah. And the second answer was, if I added security, my price will go up. I will lose the tender. I will not win the contract. So it, I think it has to be vendor driven. If we wait for a country to regulate that, it will take lots of, lots of, or many, many years. But I think, by the way, no one regulated safety. The industry itself came up with that concept from an energy perspective because of many hard learned lessons. Uh, I think the industry rail as well need to come up with its own benchmark on cyber and that there's a minimum threshold we should meet and it should be baked into the RFPs and, and, and the tenders and then the, the industry would respond if that's uh, the popular demand. Yeah, I think there is an element of that having to work together though, and I've just got a, a brilliant example. I'll try to keep it short. It's absolutely during the procurement procedure, security was baked in by this particular vendor. They were looking to try to keep it vanilla, distribute say remote routers out in the field to manage certain processes. And it was a lift and shed. They wanted these remote routers and they'd analyze one vendor they all passed original due diligence the security questionnaires could provide the relevant stamps and certificates however when we actually came to do the testing and did it to an irrelevant depth and referring to omar's part and and uh, what mickey said about different levels depth what quality work has been done on security can vary wildly when we've reverse engineered those devices, actually we found hard-coded credentials we've been able to access the underlying operating system so that 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 client, um, you know, spent you know whatever value, decided to not go with that product. So they moved with the second one, had a similar issue. They were onto the third proof of concept. Um, so they've invested several thousands of pounds. They've ruled out two vendors who absolutely had devices out in the field. But again, all negotiations are covered by NDA. There's no ability to share that there are critical issues identified in devices out on the field. Other organizations are buying them because they're believing the due diligence and the certifications and not doing their own validation checks on the proof of concepts. Yeah. And then the culmination, my, the, my favorite one on the, the third vendor who was fantastic. And again, 
got the results, actioned it, took action, moved forward, because having vulnerabilities and software bugs will happen. That's not the end of the world. It's remediating and moving forward. But originally, um, you know, one of the, the previous vendors had fixed the overlying uh, credentials that had allowed us access to the operating system. So we asked, well, can you validate that the underlying operating systems have been fixed? Well, you can't see them now, so that's not a problem. Well, no, we've already seen them. It's like opening the bonnet on a car, seeing it's all rusted and then them gluing the bonnet shop and saying, no, we fixed it. It's fine. You know, these crazy excuses that people. So there are so many companies that are actually trying to do good security. They're following good procurement practices, but it takes money and investment. I am really passionate. As I said, this event, this cross knowledge, the knowledge sharing. I know we can't go into details on vendors, but I think building into these procurement agreements that if you invest in their products and share that report with them and highlight issues, there is a right to disclosure to a regulator. There's some issues. And again, holding those vendors and those manufacturers accountable to industry because we are going to share if we come and do a proof of concepts, find higher coded credentials. We're going to let the regulator know the regulator can provide that information in a controlled fashion. And we can all do, do better security together. And these vendors won't get away with producing substandard products from a security perspective. And I, seen, I know that sounds quite harsh, but I thought it was a really good example. My client was trying to do really good security. They'd spent thousands, but they wanted to go and tell their mate in the other company, but they couldn't. But there were hundreds of thousands of these devices deployed. And that, to me, I think as all cybersecurity professionals that care about what we do, that is a terrifying component and of a challenge we're facing in every industry, holding those manufacturers and vendors to account. Because it doesn't matter whether we're sourcing our chipsets from China, having it manufactured in Singapore or ships from New Zealand. It shouldn't matter where it is coming from, um, you know, where the software has been implemented. That's a great share because it's a big problem, not just obviously in this space, but in others, uh, information sharing or lack thereof and constraints on sharing things. And it's not trivial. I like the way you handled it, which is not like we should be able to share everything with everybody. Well, no, there's business and there's liability. But boy, we got to find a pathway, right? We so have it's to. better than it is now, which is all on lockdown. Yeah, I, 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 thank you for sharing it in the way you did. That was that was great. I saw Mickey, you nodding your head quite a bit during that. Yeah, unfortunately, that's the harsh reality. And uh, like I totally agree with those comments about uh, the fact that the legal requirement, the, the legal environment in the rail sector, also the fact that it's quite small uh, is something that uh, sometimes it's not very helpful for information exchange or like at least sharing it publicly, especially when if you think about it, the global supply chain of rail is comprised of very specific vendors that operate globally because there is quite a high bar to become a real supplier. It's not very easy. Uh, and therefore, even if you get sharing in some regional level, sometimes you have a challenge of like sharing in a more worldwide or let's say to other territories that use the same devices. Uh, and I, I've also seen like cases that the same supplier can have different security standards when they sell to different countries based on competitiveness of pricing as Omar mentioned. And that, that's that's quite tricky, like that you don't have a baseline for security necessarily. Because if there is a specific country that they know that they need to sell cheap in order to get in, of course security will be something that they will remove unless they were 
uh, unless the security requirements were specified in a very specific way in which they're sure that also the competitors will have to implement them. And if not, they will find a way around it. I think we get time for each of you to make sort of a farewell comment or statement or thing that you'd like to draw the most attention to. Um, so why don't we go around, uh, you know, um, Omar, Mickey, Joe, and sort of uh, sure. yeah, leave, leave us with something to think about. Uh, no, thanks a lot uh, to everyone. I think um, uh, I think I'm 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 excited about my. I think we have a session in in a month from now, hopefully about uh, OT security monitoring, OT socks, uh, and I, I think it would be um, a great chance to meet with everyone again and maybe explain how we went through building a SOC for a real environment um, and the lessons we learned along the way. I think that if my that if my closing note would be that, please join us in this session. Looking forward to. Um, to interact again with everyone here. Thank awesome. You. Glad you brought that up, Omar. Yeah, the, the follow-on sessions are going to be great because you each have so much you can you can dive into, and it, yeah. it became apparent as we talked to each of you. They're like, we couldn't contain all this in one day, so that'll be great. Yeah, Mickey. Yeah. So first, uh, thank you, Derek, for organizing it. Like, I think it's super important initiatives for transportation space, and especially for the rail space. We need to get more awareness uh, for what's happening in technology, and we need to get more professionals involved. I think it's very helpful because. Many of the people here, I'm sure that they are OT professionals, but still like, getting the complexities of rail is something that will help everyone. I'm also looking forward uh, to the next session that is going to be more related about the deep dive, getting technology and architectures, etc. And I, if I may share also a note, like we are having some sort of webinar with CISA and TSA about security directives. So if someone is interested in more regulations, please please let me please let me know. In general, like I do think that there is increased awareness in rail in the past couple of years, and such a panel would look completely differently a few years ago. Uh, and there is an improvement in different ways, like in operator environments and suppliers, uh, as well as with regulations. Uh, there are some interesting trends. And altogether, I think that we're having a positive trend, but nevertheless, like it's a critical environment and we do have to act quick in order to secure it. And it's not very trivial in rail, but still like security is a big issue and it's emerging issue. So we we have to act accordingly. Joe, you get the last word of the day. Oh, amazing. So well, make, I think make it count. Make it count. Well, I'm actually going to leave with quotes because I do love a good quote. Um, and I think they're really useful because they tend to stick with you a little bit more. But I think across transportation and I think all, you know, certainly rail and a lot of the sectors we've discussed. This is a quote from the US Department of Energy. You know, we've only got two modes, complacency and panic. And I think that's quite fair across industry, certainly when things are changing. And then another one that I really like, you know, and this was just some guy on the Internet, if I'm honest. You don't have to run faster than the bear to get away. You just have to run faster than the guy next to you. Well, you know what? I'm going to we have that quote. My, my, my side passion is in the scuba industry and you take bear out and you put shark in. It's the same quote for scuba divers. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so I think, yeah, we've got some interesting challenges ahead in the transportation sector. But I think anybody in cyber is actually quite excited about some of the new standards and regulations coming through, things being a little bit clearer. We're all ready for the challenge and the exciting things that are coming through. And yeah, just hoping I can run faster than the person next to me when the bear comes. Well, thank you, Joe, Mickey and Omar. And thank you. as I've said to the other industry uh, experts, these are critical 
industries and the work you're doing is really important because we all rely on it, uh, and whether we know it or not. Sometimes overt, if we're riding in one of these transport things, sure. But all the things we rely on to just work that these these industries supply and support, maybe people take for granted. So thank you for your work and for uh, preparing for today and, and uh, going through the hijinks of changing sort of how today was going to work and the follow-on events and, and all that. So it's been a pleasure. And uh, on behalf of the CSA team and the community, thank you. And I know some of you, it's quite late. So uh, good night and, uh, and do be well, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Take care. Bye, everyone. Good evening.